0: Mark chapter 10, we're gonna be studying an account today that is familiar to many, it's known as the story of the rich young ruler. Now just a little heads up, next week we will be taking a break from Mark to uh, address uh, the incarnation itself in the week before Christmas and then we are two paragraphs or two sermons away from Jerusalem and that's an important juncture in the book of Mark. Once we go into chapter 11, it's the triumphal entry and then the gospel begins to unfold in a very quick staccato fashion. So I trust that you can start reading ahead. Things will be moving very quickly once we get to chapter 11. But for today, Mark chapter 10, let me read the text for us beginning in verse 17. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. And knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, and you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, It is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the sake of the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now and in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. In the age come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first title for today is Losing to Gain, the Paradox of Following Christ. This is a lesson that Jesus teaches from a different angle over and over and over throughout the Gospels, and it's an unexpected message. This is not a message that anyone who is standing on a whiteboard organizing a religion would have preached, would have invented. In the middle of his suffering, Job, who we all know bits about, was ravaged with loss was ravaged with sickness and disease Job asked the most important question in the Old Testament while going back and forth with his friends he asks them in Job chapter 9 verse 2 how can a man be in the right before god no more important question is asked in all the Old Testament a simple and profound question reflected the desire to be right with God and ultimately to be with him in heaven. In the text we just read in Mark's gospel, this man asks the most important question, I think, that exists in the New Testament. He says in verse 17, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Said another way, how can I go to heaven? They're both the same question asked from a different angle. How can I be right with God? How can I go to heaven? How can I avoid judgment in hell? This is the definitive and the decisive question of the human heart. I hope it's a question that you've asked and I hope it's a question that you found an answer to. When we come to the study of the story of the man and his question, it is a noticeable contrast to what we studied in the previous paragraph where Jesus was, was blessing the little children. There, Jesus teaches that to truly come to him is to come as an infant, a little child. How does a little child come? We often say, well, they come in childlike faith. The point is they come with no faith. They come with nothing in and of themselves, completely dependent, nothing to offer, and Jesus says, this is the disposition of anyone who would come to Christ. Very next paragraph, a man comes and approaches Jesus with social status, material possessions, an understanding or at least an estimation of his own worthiness in the eyes of God, quite the opposite of an infant, And someone who is dependent. But to this very man, Jesus offers the clearest explanation of the way to heaven that he has in all of his teaching ministry thus far. Nowhere else is he asked this question with such specificity and nowhere else does he answer with such clarity. Think about what we're experiencing here. Someone is asking Jesus, how do I go to heaven? And Jesus gives the answer. It is far more than amazing to look at this text. We're about to see that earthly assets can be a wonderful blessing to the Lord or they can be a great hindrance to salvation. Unlike children or the infants that we just uh, observed in this previous paragraph, who know nothing uh, of faith, who who have nothing to bring to Christ except dependency and need. This man is quite the opposite. He comes with a self-righteousness, a self-assertion of his own goodness. Also, tremendous amount of earthly assets. He's wealthy. And as we'll find out, that actually will keep him from salvation. It's a traumatic story. It is a troubling story unless we understand how this story is a mirror for us to look into and find self-evaluation. So let me ask you to carefully and humbly listen. We're gonna move fast through this story. We need to take it all in one lump. Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ and outline what's at stake in determining your eternal destiny, your soul. Now, as we break down the story, as we look at the story, even though it's longer and even though it's intricate, it easily breaks down into teaching us about, and here's what we'll look at, two tragic choices that will cost you eternity. Two tragic choices that could or would cost you eternity, eternal life, salvation. The first tragic choice that will cost you eternal life is refusing to admit your sin. This is verses 17 through 20, refusing to admit your sin. Look at verse 17. As he, that is obviously Jesus, was setting out on a journey that's setting up toward Jerusalem from, from down by the, uh, the Dead Sea region, as he was setting out on a journey, a man runs up to him, ran up to him with urgency, kneels down before him, falls on his face, and asks him, Good teacher, what shall I do? It's important. What will I, should I do to inherit eternal life? Again, let's remember where we are. Mark locates Jesus at the beginning of the chapter as in the region of Judea, specifically Perea, beyond the Jordan. He's now left there and begun the ascent up toward Jerusalem. We don't know how far he's gone, but he's on his way toward Jerusalem where he will arrive in that area in the next chapter. A man runs up to him. He's urgent. He finds Jesus and he sprints toward Jesus. This must have been a difficult task, knowing the swelling crowds that would have surrounded Jesus as he moved through that region. He's urgent. He has a desire to have an audience with Jesus. Mark simply identifies this man as one in the Greek and one ran up to Jesus. A certain person, you could translate it. Later we find out that he was very wealthy, owned much property, but Matthew and Luke give us a little bit more insight. Matthew identifies the man as a young man, which would have been interesting if he was young and wealthy. Luke 18, 18 calls him a ruler. He was a well respected leader in perhaps the synagogue in the area, a well respected man of status who owned much property, which was unusual as a young man. So he had either inherited a large amount of of fortune, which garnered him respect in the eyes of the community, or he was such a, a, a shrewd and excellent businessman that by a young age he had amassed much property. Young, wealthy, a ruler, respected, probably in the synagogue, probably a teacher from that word. After running to Jesus, he does something that rulers and the wealthy typically don't do. The New American Standard says he knelt. Literally, he fell on his face, prostrate in humility, an act of obvious submission and humility. He knew that Jesus was someone who garnered respect. Now the story begins with this man's accurate awareness of who Jesus was, but tragically it's going to end with him not caring enough about that recognition. He runs, he bows, he has Jesus' attention. And no doubt the attention of everyone standing around. He seems not to care about what the people would think. We'll find out later that the disciples had certainly witnessed this because Jesus debriefs with the disciples about this event. And he makes a statement and then he asks a question. It's important. He makes this statement and then he follows the statement with a question. The statement is this, good teacher, Good teacher. Now let me reserve fully commenting on this until Jesus responds to his calling him good. But zero in for a moment on the question he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice a couple things. First of all, this man believes in life after death. He cares about his soul's health after death. He believes there is an eternal state. He also believes that eternal life cannot be taken for granted. He knows and he wants eternal life, but he seems to know that he doesn't possess it. He wants to go to heaven and seems to know that he's not. Where did he get that idea? Well, as a teacher or as a ruler, likely a reference to his position in the synagogue. Perhaps he knew of Daniel 12 too. Daniel 12 too is one of the most definitive verses in the Old Testament about heaven and hell. Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There is life after death. One is to eternal life, everlasting life. That's what this man asks about. But the other option is is to wake up after death and disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's a description of hell. This man understands there is judgment after death. There is heaven, there is hell. And frankly, he's afraid of going to the bad place. He clearly understands eternal life to mean heaven as opposed to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Which would have indicated hell. What a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That afterlife that Daniel describes. We have no record of anyone else in the gospels asking Jesus such a question. I think it's interesting that we don't have any record of the disciples asking Jesus this question. One would have thought they would have been curious this man comes up obviously in desperation, obviously in fear of hell, obviously in fear of judgment, and wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, I think the fact that all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this event as telling about how important a question this is and how important this uh, response that Jesus provides is. You can feel the anxiety. You can feel the curiosity of not only this man, but the disciples and the bystanders. What will Jesus say? Because they no doubt wanted the answer for their souls as well. Now, before the Lord answers this man's question, he addresses how the man refers to him. Remember how he makes the statement, then asks the question. The question is, what do I do to inherit eternal life? The question, uh, the statement rather, is good teacher. Jesus says in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is a puzzling and shocking response. Jesus, being God in flesh, couldn't he? Shouldn't he? Wouldn't he have just said, I am good? Only God is good, and I am God, therefore I am good. Why did he say, Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Why would he say that? Is he denying his deity? Is he denying his sinlessness? Is he saying, I'm not really good? No, 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 not at all. Does he mean, Sir, you should not have called me good. God is God. God is good alone. I am not God, therefore I am not good. Is that what he's saying? No, may it never be. We know that this is not what Jesus is saying. The rest of the New Testament affirms his sinlessness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin, but he substituted for us as our sin payment. So what does he mean? Why why do you call me good? No one's good but God. What does that mean? Well, I think the best way to understand Jesus' response is to understand the Lord to say something like this. You're not thinking of goodness in the right way. When you describe me as good teacher, you're not thinking of it in the right way. If you really want to talk about goodness, you should think of God alone who is good and the keeping of his commandments. I think he's reversing the polarity. You're calling me good? And in a minute we'll find out that he thinks he's good. And he says, only God is good. Have you measured goodness against God? He's not denying that he's good. Nowhere does he deny that he is good. He just says, why are you calling me that? His aim is to glorify the Father, God, Jesus is, Get this, his aim right here is not to glorify himself. How do we know that? Because Jesus speaks of glorifying himself only after Judas has betrayed him, left the Last Supper, and then in John 13, 31, he says, now that Judas has gone out, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. This was before he was ready to glorify himself. So he still speaks in reference to, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. Now, the deduction for the disciples should have been, wait a minute. If he is good and he's asking, why do you call me good? Because only God is good. They should have connected the dots that he is good and thus God. So here Jesus is forcing this man to admit what he is saying by ascribing goodness to him. You're calling me good? You understand goodness? You understand only God is good? Do you understand that you are ascribing deity to me? Do you really understand or do you have a very superficial understanding of goodness, which he did and we'll find out in just a moment. He's also making the point that by ascribing goodness to him, he wants the disciples to hear that he didn't deny it. Jesus is no doubt expressing a very lighthearted, superficial, even salutary greeting in this man's understanding of good. We know this because if he had truly believed Jesus was truly good, he would have obeyed Jesus at the end of the story and he doesn't. Also, he's about to esteem himself as good showing his understanding of goodness and righteousness is not biblical. For this man, and for you, for me, for anyone who comes to Christ for salvation, an accurate understanding of God's absolute standard of goodness and holiness, perfection, is essential to see the gap between him and us, the the reason that we need a savior we start with the fact that God is holy and good alone, and Jesus will be the bridge to that wonderful deity. Verse 19, he, he turns to the man, he says, You know the commandments. Another indication that the ruler part of this man's identity probably meant he was a leader in the synagogue. You, you, you know the commandments. Now, when you saw the commandments, it was typically a reference to the 10 words of Moses, the 10 commandments. So Jesus then lists five of them in the the latter table, the second table, which is our relationship with man. But he also adds a commandment that's not in the 10. See if you can identify it. Do not murder, one of them. Do not commit adultery. You know these commandments. Do not steal. He says, you know this commandment. Do not bear false witness. You know this commandment. Do not defraud. Honor your father you know, father and mother, you know this commandment. Five of these commandments are from Exodus 20, verses 12 to 16, Deuteronomy 5, verses 16 through 20. And specifically, the list is prohibitions against murder, adultery, theft, false witness, and dishonoring parents. And then Jesus adds, and do not defraud. Now, over and over in the book of Numbers and Leviticus, The Israelites are told to take care of the poor. Uh, It would be horrible to defraud the poor. Why does Jesus include this little statement, do not defraud? Well, as the story is about to advance, it's clear that the sin that this man was struggling with had to do with his wealth, his assets, what he owned. Oftentimes during that day, we have no assurance of this, but oftentimes, We have no assurance of this with this man. Uh, Wealth was accumulated at the expense of the poor and where you would defraud them, and even using your wealth to take advantage of the poor. It is interesting that Jesus asks uh, this man, Do you know the commandment? Or assumes in the man's hearing, You know the commandment. Don't defraud. Don't, Don't take advantage of the poor. Don't take advantage of anyone financially. Don't swindle. Don't lie to them for financial gain. Jesus is implying that the man knows the answer. You inherit eternal life by, listen, perfect obedience to God's commands. And that's true. If anyone could perfectly obey God's commands, they would be worthy of heaven. But there's a problem. No one has ever perfectly obeyed God's command, but for one person. And that's who this man is talking to. One commentator remarks, the expressed emphasis on both God's goodness and the commandments in Jesus' response to the man suggests that despite his moral zeal, or perhaps because of it, something is lacking in his relationship with God. Now, verse 20 should be nails on a chalkboard. Uh, this is an incredible response. And he said to him, teacher, calls him teacher for a second time, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Since I was a kid, I've done that. Not only do I know these commandments, I've been stellar at these commandments since I was a youth. Remember the question, Jesus, uh, he said, what must I what was the verb? Do, do to inherit eternal life. He clearly understands that you live in a way that's reflective of what you believe. He clearly understood that there is the ultimate, for require, ultimate requirement for eternal life is ethics, how you live. And Jesus agrees with him by answering that one must live in obedience with the second half of the Decalogue. And he adds also financial integrity. So Jesus says, for the second time teacher, I've kept all these things since I was a boy. Yeah, I know those. Of course I know. You know these commandments Jesus says, not only do I know those, I've kept them all since youth group. I've been perfect in these things. How could he say this? Now, everyone is quick to say this man had no awareness of his own unrighteousness and you would be right. Everyone is quick to say he had no awareness of his um, obedience and, and you would be wrong. Why do you say that? Before you're quick to judge him, do you remember what Paul himself claimed in Philippians 3, 6 about his obedience to the Mosaic law? He said, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Then he says, as to righteousness, which is in the law, Paul said, I was found blameless. Same position. Paul said, when I looked at my external life and obedience, I was moral. It would be hard to find something in my life to throw a rock at. This man lived the same way. But Paul would later say, but what was going on in my heart was the problem. So this man, along with Paul, had an external understanding of righteousness. Externally, both Paul and this rich young ruler were were blameless in checking the boxes in the eyes of others about their, their righteousness. Does that mean they were perfect externally? No, just means they had an awareness of their obedience and probably a reputation of being good guys. However, External behavior is not always indicative of what is in the heart. There are many people in religions all around the world who do extreme acts of outward ethics and moral excellence, but their heart is impure. This man refused to admit that he was stained with sin, weighted with sin, guilty of sin, and responsible for sin. Refusing to admit sin is the first step toward a Christless eternity. God doesn't grade on a curve. Typically, we measure our righteousness and our obedience by someone else and we can find someone that we're better than so we feel okay. It doesn't matter that we can find someone who's better than us. If, we, if we're on the other side of someone who we really feel is a sinner, we feel like we're okay and safe. Just before Jesus' encountered with this man, just before that, Luke records the Lord teaching a parable that strikes at the heart of the issue. You know this parable well. In Luke chapter 18, right before the rich young ruler, Luke records Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, which is interesting in, in and of itself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, Comparing swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, obviously pointing to someone else there in worship. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing.